We I didn't know that Trudeau lost the popular vote. Yeah, very narrowly in 2019. Yeah. How come people don't complain about that more? I don't hear very many Trudeau-loving progressives point out that that their guy actually lost the popular vote. I mean, but why would you point that out if you love Trudeau? Well, the point is that like people are opportunistic about like. Oh wait. Is this the part of the podcast where we all learn for the first time that political actors are opportunistic? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Last week, Ohio Representative Anthony Gonzalez, one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach President Trump after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, announced he is retiring from Congress at the end of his term. He was facing a primary challenge from a former Trump White House aide and told the New York Times that Trump is, quote, a cancer for the country. Today, we're going to take a look at where the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach President Trump stand in their bids to win re-election next fall. We'll also look at some research on what happens if the Republican Party does fully rid itself of voices pushing back against Trump's anti-democratic moves. We're also going to follow up on some of the lessons learned from the California recall election. Can that election tell us anything about the race for control of Congress in 2022? And CNN is making big changes in how it conducts its surveys to try to reach people who might not be responding to traditional polls. Is it a good or bad use of polling? We're going to ask our favorite question. And here with me to do all of that is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hello, Nate. How's it going? Good. How is everybody? You know, hanging hanging in there. Mondays are always tough, but uh, it's a sunny day, so I, I can't complain. Also here with us is Politics Editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. And elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeffrey, how you doing? Hey, Galen. So before we get going, I do want to say happy election day to our Canadian neighbors to the north. And happy final election week to any German listeners. I think their election is this coming Sunday. So some interesting elections that we'll be watching and maybe have a chance to talk about later this week on this podcast. We'll, we'll see. But let's begin with our favorite question, which is good use of polling or bad use of polling. As I mentioned, CNN recently announced that they're changing how they conduct their polling. So since they began their polling operation in the early 1990s, they've been conducting almost exclusively phone polls, which means you just dial up random numbers that are chosen completely randomly and ask people how they're going to vote, if they approve of how the president is doing, so on and so forth. So now they are going to mail survey requests to a sample of addresses across the country, and then ask those recipients to complete their surveys by phone or online. And then in some cases, they will also follow up by phone, calling the people who received the mailing. So potential respondents are selected randomly based on their address and some known characteristics about the area where they live, which means that this is not a purely random sample, as had been the case with the phone calls. So these polls are going to be conducted with a larger sample than was previously done with the phone-only polling, and they'll be in the field for a longer period of time than traditional news polls. Hopefully that all made sense. It's a pretty big change for an important polling outfit, and I guess we should just start off by asking our, our usual question, is this a good or bad use of polling? I don't know, because there are kind of a lot of moving parts to this. I mean, I have a few overarching thoughts. One is that there clearly have been problems with the traditional polling methodology over the past couple of election cycles. Now, 
why do those problems originate? Is it intrinsic to the design of these surveys or is it more circumstantial? Like you could argue that, here's a devil's advocate case. You could argue that in 2016, pollsters were caught off guard by educational polarization and they have to wait for that when they didn't. Although again, that reflects the fact that you're not getting a random sample in the first place, that more educated people are more likely to respond to surveys. And then in 2020, you have lots of bored Democrats who are staying at home and answering phone calls while Republicans go out to their restaurants and are less concerned about COVID restrictions and therefore that the skew in 2020 was a result of one-off COVID circumstances. And therefore, you know, if you had polls in 2022, they might wind up with the right answer. It's kind of like the devil's advocate case that would say maybe with circumstantial, these things weren't intrinsically broken. But I don't blame folks. And CNN, frankly, has not had especially good results, even relative to other traditional polling firms the past few cycles. I don't blame at least some pollsters for saying, let's actually reinvent the wheel. Is this the way to do it? I have no idea, <laughs> frankly. You know, from our point of view, from people who aggregate different polls, we would ideally like a lot of different companies to try a lot of different methods and see what works. And in the meantime, you probably have to be fairly humble and say, this is why you would take an average. I do think that if you're talking about a news poll, that having a survey um, that's in the field for a month, I mean, the one poll they did with this methodology is in the field for, it looks like 34 days or something like that. I think the utility of that for news-related surveys and CNN out of any media outlet is on the news. I think that's kind of problematic. If there is a development in Afghanistan, the U.S. withdraws and there are problems with that withdrawal, and you want to see how that affects Joe Biden's approval rating, it's not very useful if you only learn that a month later. Although what is interesting here is that in their polling analysis, they, I guess, sampled enough people that they could look at the differences in responses to the poll between the first part of being in the field and the second part to try to explain any changes in opinion because of what was happening in Afghanistan or something like that. And they also said that they were going to use these polls to help them weight polls that are going to be in the field for shorter periods of time later on. So I don't think every poll that CNN now does is going to be in the field for a month. For sure. And I think the fact that you have these kind of more robust surveys that serve as a basis to weight more off the news surveys, I think it could potentially be a really smart compromise in a way, right? I guess like part of what I'm resisting is like, there is this like kind of change pushback against horse race polls. Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, what really matters are long-term opinions of the American electorate. And it's like, that does matter. But seeing how the electorate result reacts to news is also important. And so I'm, I guess, pushing back against a pedantic or paternalistic a dislike of course race polls, especially for a network that really is about we're playing off the news and stuff like that. So look, it, it could all be fine. It could all be very good, in fact. I do wonder, though, that the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. So you're ultimately kind of contacting people by mail. It seems to me like if you're not careful, people who have more stable addresses are more likely to respond. If you have a house and a discrete mailbox at your house and the mail gets delivered there, I'm pretty sure that for non-personal mail, if you've lived in like some 300-unit apartment complex, sometimes the mail delivery is not as accurate as if you have your own personal address. So would that introduce other types of biases, potentially? Can you correct for them? Yeah, probably. Do you know how to correct for them in the first instance? Maybe not, potentially. And so and so that becomes a bit of a challenge. It's like, 
new problems that are unanticipated versus trying to fix the kind of devil you know. Yeah, Jeffrey and Sarah, I'm curious what you made of kind of how they're going about sampling folks in this instance. Yeah, you know, the address-based sampling move is something that I know Pew Research has moved toward doing for their American Trends panel in terms of actually recruiting respondents for their panel. However, that's for a panel, and they were interested in trying to make sure that their panel of many thousands, I think it's over 10,000 potential respondents, are diverse and hitting certain demographics that maybe they felt like they were missing to some extent or not getting a sufficient number of. You know, with CNN, I don't think they're planning on starting a panel survey So maybe it functions a little differently, but the goal is still the same. You know, the idea is to make sure you have a broader sampling that actually reflects the country. And there's obviously a concern that poll respondents tend to be too educated and maybe they're missing some of the Trump base in the uh, polling for the 2020 election. So I get the changes and the motivations for this. Like Nate said, though, there are a lot of moving parts. And I wonder if they're just like too many moving parts uh, to really say one way or the other whether this is going to be an effective change for them, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest hesitation around these changes were what Nate was getting at with the idea of like a month-long poll to a news event just is counterintuitive to even understanding presidential's approval rating, right? Like that is difficult to do over a month-long period. You want an instantaneous kind of like snapshot reaction to the news. However, like, you know, as we've gone over, you know, not every poll that CNN does now will last a month. They're trying this two-prong approach. And we know that there are real problems with random digit dialing, you know, for phones, cell phones now, just because I have a 707 area code, I don't live in Northern California. Like there are real problems in trying to reach people that way. I do think though, to some extent, as we see pollsters try to solve for the errors of 2022, I think as Nate was getting at, there's always a risk of overcorrecting. And right now the problem of those not responding to surveys, this non-response bias, it's kind of this thorny chicken egg situation where like, if the real reason is distrust in government, I'm not sure a different method of trying to reach people is going to help solve that problem. That said, though, I mean, I think the idea of trying to do more address-based polling, because you can sync that up to a voter file, even though there are caveats, as Nate was mentioning, about not everyone having, you know, an easy, accessible housing address. And so you're inherently going to miss some people. I'm kind of curious by this experiment that CNN is running and what that will yield here in 2022, because we know that there were problems in 2020. And again, a midterm election is very different than a presidential election. Remember, the polls were really good in 2018. But I do think, you know, in terms of different pollsters trying to experiment with methodologies to correct for 2020 and the misses that we saw there, particularly as it relates to non-response bias. I'm curious to see how this works out. So I don't know if I want to say, I guess, yeah, good use of polling. I think that they've laid out a pretty reasonable two-pronged approach. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to keep it moving into 2024, but it seems as if it was a well-thought-out take to try to solve for what happened in the last election. I want to say here that I think there is something interesting that we're going to be able to learn from this poll when it comes to non-response bias. Since they know information about the addresses that they're sending these survey requests to, 
they're going to be able to see if there are real differences between the types of people who end up responding to the survey and the types of people who don't. Right now, as you said, part of the assumption is that the polls were wrong in 2020 because of non-response bias, meaning that the people who don't respond to polls are fundamentally different in terms of their views, opinions, et cetera, from the people who do respond to polls. Previously, even though only 5% of people or less were responding to polls, those people were not radically different in their views than all of the people who weren't responding, the 95% of people who didn't respond. So that's the concern now. They're going to be able to learn if there are key demographic indicators that help us understand who's not responding to surveys. I think that is going to be important information, almost regardless of the end result here, if this is a really good polling methodology or not. But this does also lead to a question, which is that it means they're not really doing random sampling, which we generally think of as the standard in polling, right? They're going to be choosing specific demographic information that they're going to be sending these survey requests based on. How do we feel about that? Like, is this the official end of random sampling in, in polling? Was it never really the ideal that we thought it was? How do they choose the addresses? This is what they wrote in their article. It said, rather than randomly generating a geographically balanced sample of phone numbers, potential respondents were selected randomly based on their address and some known characteristics about the area where they live. That latter part seems vague enough that I'm not really sure what it yeah. means. Yeah. <laughs> I don't love the idea of pre-qualifying people with the exception of if you have some group that you think will be undersampled. Let's say there is a police shooting and you want to see how black Americans, maybe younger black Americans feel about that. Ordinarily, if you sample a thousand people, you're not going to get enough of a sample of younger black voters. And so maybe if you needed to like actually oversample as a term, people misunderstand that term for certain demographic groups that are important and newsworthy, then that would make sense. I don't like the idea of pre-non-randomizing as opposed to trying to randomize and then waiting after the fact. That seems to me like if you don't do that right, you're kind of introducing a bias into the sample. I mean, look, as much as like we probably aren't getting truly random samples anymore for many reasons, not everyone is equally likely to respond. But it's important to distinguish response rates from response bias. If only 1% of my people respond to my survey, but who responds is totally uncorrelated with any other characteristic, then my survey is unbiased. It's unbiased, even though it might be very expensive because I missed 99% of people. But like if you sample the people, then eventually you get an unbiased sample. On the other hand, response rates by male surveys tend to be pretty high but if there is a bias, and you can go back to the famous Literary Digest poll in the 1930s, I guess it was, it had Alf Land in incorrectly defeating Franklin Roosevelt. If there is a bias in who responds, whether because of who responds or because you can reduce that bias and who you send the forms to or who you recruit, it just it's a higher degree of difficulty dive, I would guess I would say, from like the 10-meter platform. Or is that the low platform or the high platform? It's like a 30 minute, anyway, what the f*** am I talking about? But the point is- Just mixing uh, metaphors and <laughs> things all over the place. Well, I feel like this design feels like it's a bit of mixed metaphors, kind of the problem. Okay. I'm not sure that's not a little bit like overthought, because to your point, Galen, you can observe through a voter file demographic characteristics too. That's with the telephone survey, right? You know where someone lives. You, in many states, know or can impute their race and their gender. 
You sometimes know which party they're registered with, whether they voted previously. So the voter file polls, I would think the argument that they're better than random digit dial polls, and CNM was RDD, I think, that argument is pretty solid, although even some of those types of methodologies, like the upshot Siena polls, although good in 2016 and 2018, had issues in 2020. My vantage point is like, I would rather that if there are 10 different pollsters, that they all do 10 slightly different and funky things, as opposed to like all copying one another. That's more robust. So even though I think maybe this seems like it's on the complicated side, I don't know, maybe it'll be the industry standard and maybe CNN's ahead of the curve and I'd rather there be innovation than stagnation. Wrapping up here, Sarah, you said this was a good use of polling. Nate, Jeffrey, let's get on the record here. Good or bad use of polling? Good use of polling. Yeah, I'll go with uh, good use of polling as well. If they don't feel like what they were doing previously was was working and was up to snuff, then they should try new approaches to, to see if they can do something better, something they feel more confident in. So I think that's good to see pollsters doing. All right. So good use of polling all around. Let's move on and talk about Anthony Gonzalez's retirement. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Last week, Republican Representative Anthony Gonzalez from Cleveland announced that he will not be running for re-election in 2022. As I mentioned at the top, he's one of 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach President Trump after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. He's spoken out repeatedly against anti-democratic tendencies within the Republican Party. He said at a virtual forum in May, quote, I think continuing to perpetuate falsehoods, especially ones that are dangerous, that led to the violence on January 6th, is a recipe for disaster for the party, but it's also horribly irresponsible. He is the first of the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment to retire. So let's talk about his experience in particular and then the broader dynamics of the party. So first off, why is Gonzalez retiring? Would it have been impossible for him to win in a Republican primary? Why not make his case and see if voters within the party are willing to accept it? I do think that there was a chance Gonzalez could have won renomination, but at the same time, he had a challenging race ahead of him. For one thing, his congressional district was probably going to change a fair bit. Ohio is losing a district. And since I don't think Gonzalez has exactly won over a lot of Republicans with his impeachment vote, it's possible that he might have borne the brunt in the redraw. We don't really know what those districts are going to look like yet. But nonetheless, he, he couldn't count on his district not being substantially changed. 
He also had in Max Miller a significant opponent in that Miller was a former Trump aide, had been endorsed by Trump, was fundraising a fair amount of money to take on Gonzalez. So there were some clear electoral pressures on Gonzalez. And then it also sounds like from his interview that there were a lot of not electoral, but life pressures. You know, he felt like he was getting threats. He had security with him all the time. He was worried about his family. And given the state of the Republican Party and support for Trump and anger toward Republicans who are, you know, rhinos, Republicans in name only, according to critics of them, it's, I guess, not a shock that someone wouldn't want to necessarily go through that. And I think it's particularly telling coming from a guy who just turned 37 years old and is only in his second term in the House and probably at one time would have been seen as a, a rising star in the party, but now is exiting stage right instead. Yeah, I mean, Jeffrey has a piece on this coming out later this week, but you know, I, I think it's really telling not just Gonzalez, but then the nine other House Republicans that voted for impeachment after the January 6th attack at the Capitol is kind of this larger question it poses for the future of the GOP. You know, what will it mean? for these 10 Republicans who voted against Trump, essentially, for their electoral future if they either retire or are not reelected. One point Jeffrey made in the article using something from former 538er Laura Bronner and now contributor was her metric that looked at which senators and representatives in Congress vote most often in favor of democracy. And what she had found was that of these 10 Republicans, they had some of the highest ratings on pro-democracy electoral measures within Congress, in particular, someone like Gonzalez, but then also Liz Cheney, who I'm sure we'll talk about, John Katko, and Adam Kinzinger. And so if those voices aren't still within the GOP, we have a possibility that the GOP is going to continue to shift further to the right. That's something Nathaniel Rakich had also written for the site, looking at Republicans who had either retired or lost since 2016, showing that while it hasn't been a huge shift to the right, it still has been like a steady progression where those getting elected to Congress are more conservative and are more Trumpy. And I think that's kind of the big question with these Republicans moving forward. Yeah, I do think that it's important to maybe not call them <laughs> conservative, right? Because A, they aren't necessarily conservative on economic policy. I mean, they are, but maybe not actually as conservative as like the Paul Ryan generation of Republicans and be kind of in some ways radically anti-lowercase d democratic. So I'm not sure that conservative is the right word, although like liberal, we were making fun of the Canadians earlier for how they use these terms differently. You know, it kind of gets ambiguous. That's a good point. But no, I mean, I feel like anytime we have a segment on this kind of branch of topics, isn't it just kind of obvious that the GOP is purging members that are less <laughs> anti-democratic. And at some point, maybe that changes, but there's no particular reason or mechanism to think that's going to change right now. And that is very threatening in many ways to the future of democracy. I wish there was some more nuance and subtlety, but like those seem like the headline takeaways. I mean, what is kind of the stopping point? I mean, part of the problem is like, the stopping point is often when you lose elections. You lose elections and therefore you say, you know what, we have to change course. But like if you delegitimize the loss of the election, you say the election was rigged, or you make it easier for you to win elections because of gerrymandering, voter suppression. Again, we can go through those things one by one. I think there probably are some people that like 
overestimate the impact of voter suppression on the actual turnout numbers. But still, if you delegitimize elections, then that corrective mechanism is gone. Maybe if you win an election really big, (laughs) then you kind of mellow out. But the problem is like Republicans are not very appealing to the middle of the electorate and they're winning their share of elections because of things like gerrymandering and the fact that in the Senate you have a built-in constitutional bias toward more rural constituencies. So I don't really know that there's a natural escape hatch from this path. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one reason why we are tracking these 10 House Republicans and their fate, because the extent to which they are reelected or aren't, I think, does have a huge foreshadowing of what potential paths lie for the GOP. And, you know, as Jeffrey discusses it in his article, like there's varying levels of threat that each of these candidates are experiencing. Some of it also might be more redistricting than any primary challenger. Yeah, Jeffrey. So we know now what's happening with Gonzalez's political future, at least immediate political future. What is happening to the other nine? We talked about Liz Cheney either last week or the week before in in the sense that Trump endorsed one of her challengers and there's been some consolidation around her primary opponent at this point. So maybe what about the other eight? Right. So at this point of the group of 10, four had primary challengers or half primary challengers that were endorsed by Trump. One of those was Gonzalez, so take him out of the picture. You've got nine left now that he's retiring. And Liz Cheney is also someone with a Trump-endorsed challenger, Harriet Hageman. There's opportunity there for Andy Cheney sentiment to really coalesce around her. And you've seen some of the other primary challengers drop out, which I think worsens Cheney's chances. And so with the other eight, it's sort of a split between four who are probably more endangered by their primary challengers and four who may actually face more trouble from redistricting than their primary challengers. That doesn't mean that they didn't have significant opposition from within their own party necessarily. It's just that at the end of the day, the way things are going, they may have more trouble with their new lines. So you have a couple members from Washington State, Dan Newhouse and Jamie Herrera-Butler, who both voted to impeach Trump. They are in districts that are fairly red, particularly Newhouse, he's in like East Central Washington and is pretty red there. But they both have challengers who could perhaps overtake them. But Washington is also a tricky state because of the top two primary. So two candidates, regardless of their party, advance to the general election. So there's some uncertain sort of electoral format complication there in terms of how that'll play out. But they do have serious competition, like people of note, Like one of the guys running against Newhouse was the 2020 nominee for Washington Republicans in their gubernatorial race against Jay Inslee. He lost, but he talked up the notion that there was electoral fraud, unfounded, of course. Um, And with Butler, she has an opponent who was endorsed by Trump. So things get complicated for them. Tom Rice in South Carolina, who's basically the most conservative of the people who voted to impeach Trump, or at least most Trump-friendly in terms of his voting record, I would say, He's in South Carolina, which is a state where you got to get a majority in a primary to survive. Well, that could be challenging because he has a ton of opposition. Um, so even if he wins a plurality of the initial primary vote, that's not good enough. He's got to win a majority in a primary runoff to advance um, in his very red seat. So that's a complication for them. And then there's Fred Upton, who is from Western Michigan, is the guy who's been in Congress the longest of this whole group. I mean, he actually has a state rep from Michigan who's running against him who's also been endorsed by Trump. So there could be 
real danger there for Upton, who also has something of kind of a moderate congenial reputation, which may not really fit with where the Republican Party is now. And then, as I said, the other four have more redistricting concerns. I think particularly Adam Kinzinger in Illinois, his district may very well be dismantled by Democrats in Illinois as a part of their new the new map there. John Katko in New York, his district could shift lines pretty substantially, maybe get a little bluer. He's been holding a Democratic-leaning seat for a while now, so he's been able to survive that. But it just could complicate actually winning once more if his seat gets bluer or if he gets drawn in with Claudia Tenney, who is a more conservative Republican from next door. She probably could beat Katko in a Republican primary because she is more conservative, so that's an issue. And then there's Peter Meyer in Michigan. His district might change slightly, and it's kind of hard to say. I'd, I'd say he's probably a little less threatened of all of them. And then there's David Valadeau in California, who also has an independent redistricting commission to deal with. So they don't really have big primary challengers, those two. So these are the people who are, are facing danger. So a lot of them, I would say, may not be around next year. They either retire or they may lose in their primaries. But Gonzalez was definitely one of the ones most at risk. But I would say Cheney and, say, Rice are also in that group. I don't think they're going to go 0 for 10, but they might go 3 for 10 or 4 for 10 or something, right? And that's that many fewer people to resist within the GOP. One end game might be that you have the formation of some independent third party, some, you know, traditionally conservative but anti-anti-democratic party. That hasn't happened yet. To some extent, that surprises me because if you're like, well, I'm popular locally, but I can't win my primary, but I could win a general election, which might be true for someone like maybe not Peter Meyer, but some of the other ones, then that might be a vehicle to do that potentially. That hasn't really happened yet. You know, maybe Kissinger says I'm a Democrat now. I don't know. But that's one mechanism. So one of the questions that this brings up is what happens if there aren't voices within the Republican Party that are pushing back on unfounded claims of fraud or other anti-democratic moves that Trump or others may make? This may be pretty intuitive, but there's a new academic paper that came out. It's called Sounding the Alarm, Transgressing Democratic Norms and the Effects of Political Pushback. The lead author is Gretchen Helmke. And essentially it finds that when both Republicans and Democrats in Congress push back against violating norms and anti-democratic moves by Trump, that's conducted during the final months of the Trump presidency, then Republican voters are swayed. But when it's only Democrats, then Republican voters are not swayed. So essentially that, you know, Republican politicians do have the power to push back against norm violations. They can bring their voters along, but they actually have to do it because Democrats alone aren't going to convince Republican voters. So where do we end up if the Republican Party purges all of those voices that are pushing back against Democratic norm violation? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know. I don't know if you like maybe assess things probabilistically where I go with this, but like, this is not normal. And maybe you can say that maybe Democrats win in a big landslide in 2024. You know, you didn't really have Republicans exactly seriously contesting the California result, for example. I guess if you lose by 27, right? Then you're like, okay, we're going to actually make a few noises about voter fraud and irregularities, but we're going to concede. I mean, the other problem too for the GOP is they haven't actually done all that well, despite the fact that they have these structural advantages. They just had a a one-term president. They've lost a popular vote. What is it? Six out of seven or seven out of eight, whatever it is, in a row. Despite, again, their structural advantages, they do not have control currently over either chamber of Congress that very well might change by 2022 or in 2022. 
they don't exactly like kind of have a roadmap toward being kind of a healthy and prosperous party. I think some Republicans, if you could convince them that, hey, look, you could command this very stable and robust center-right majority that will survive for a long time and win elections the vast majority of the time and lose occasionally. And you'll get your Supreme Court justices that'll be conservative and you won't get everything you want, but you can like actually stick with the Constitution and the democracy route. You're going to win plenty often. I don't think Republicans actually have that role model exactly, right? Or believe that. And so they drink their own Kool-Aid and really believe that elections are being stolen or they think the only way to win is by this current tactic and like Trumpianism, Trumpism is like the way that you actually win elections. You know, look, I think it's fair to say that macro political trends are like hard to predict. And so is there some way that 15 years from now, this has worked out in ways that none of us on this podcast today have a real clear vision of? Yeah, for sure. But I'm not sure that happens without a lot of tumultuousness in the short run. To look at another vote, we've talked a lot here about the impeachment vote, the 10 House Republicans who voted in favor of that. There was a separate vote before that that actually happened on January 6th, right? And then that's when things broke into chaos, but was whether to certify the votes from the Electoral College. And that vote was different in the sense of, you know, impeachment. I think you can debate some of the politics of that and why some Republicans didn't vote in favor of it. But, you know, 65 Republicans voted to certify the results. That means means 147 did not. And so I think going back to that research paper you cited, Galen, the more members from the Republican Party who are winnowed out of that chunk of 65 who thought Biden won the election fairly, the fewer members there are, the less opportunity there is for debate. I mean, we even saw with the creation of the select committee that initially came out because the bipartisan independent commission to explore January 6th failed. Essentially, there were Pelosi had to appoint Republicans to that commission because the Republican Party stance was, look, we don't want to debate January 6th. And now, look, some of that might be political and it's hard to really suss out some of the reasons there. But the takeaway from that is you have a party who saw what happened on January 6th doesn't want to discuss it. And now some of the most vocal critics of what happened on January 6th are in danger of losing election. And so, yeah, where does that, what kind of opening does that leave for the party? You know, it's not people to the left of these candidates who are running in these districts. And so it, I think, creates a lot of challenges then for a healthy discourse on democracy. And then, right, like if Democrats are the only ones leading that charge, that isn't going to actually advance democratic principles and values in this country. Yeah, I don't think generally that a democracy can function when there are two major parties and only one of them is particularly supportive of the democratic system in which they operate. That's just fundamentally a problem when one party is, at this point, I would say, leaning majority toward anti-democratic, small d, democratic uh norms and support for the system. So yeah, it's it's dark and I don't know how do you get out of the spiral without some sort of dramatic reform of some kind to how our elections operate or how, I mean, honestly, that might be the way. So it's not just sort of a zero sum game. I know 
538 contributor Lee Drutman would support that. I know he's very supportive of, of trying to change over to say like a proportional representation electoral system so that you have more than two parties. And so a multi-party system encourages parties to work together in order to govern and also opens up the door to having a few different shades of say conservatism or liberalism as we know it. And that way you can maybe keep that zero-sum politics out of it. Because at the end of the day, it's like a lot of people, there may be some Republicans who are uncomfortable with Trumpist rhetoric, but they're going to vote for Republicans because they support position A, B, and C, and they really don't like Democrats because of what we know about negative partisanship and the fact that attitudes between the two parties, people view the opposing party very, very negatively. And so that's going to keep them in their camp largely, even if they're unhappy about elements of what's going on in their own party or the one that they tend to support. So as things stand, I don't really see how you get out of that sort of downward spiral. I mean, in the short run, you're not going to get a multi-party system. And I'm not sure you need a multi-party system so much as if you told me 20 years from now that America navigated this period quite smoothly and fears were overblown, which is always possible, by the way. I mean, things are sometimes overblown. But if you had a capital C conservative party that consisted of members who voted with Republicans on most legislative matters, but with Democrats on democracy, and you had 15 members of that group in the House, most of whom are former Republicans, but a few of them might be former Democrats, four or five members of that group in the Senate, then all of a sudden that group kind of is extremely powerful and they're a coalition partner and everything. And so maybe some really rich okay. person, and Mitt Romney will get together in a room and be like, we have to like start like a conservative third party. Okay, sure, but that party would still have to win votes. And so if the main distinguishing factor is that they're pro-democracy and they talk about democratic norms and values to voters, like how many voters out there vote on this stuff? I mean, I don't know if Democrats are voting on that or if they're voting on a whole bunch of other stuff, but how many people out there are voting primarily on this, would join a party or vote for a politician simply because they distinguish themselves as pro-democratic norms and values? I think democratic norms and values are pretty popular and that the anti-democratic moves are fairly unpopular for the GOP. Yeah, I think the notion that we're catering to like our base, I mean, I think that puts the cart before the horse. I think a lot of this has to do with spineless elites from whom public opinion follows. And if they were thinking a little bit more long-term about what they value instead of being like dumb and spineless, then the country would have fewer problems right now. But then Nate, how do you reconcile the majority of polls then that show that at least among Republicans, and to your broader point, it is unpopular within like the entire electorate, but like zooming in on Republicans, they still think that Biden didn't win fairly. I think that aspect is why this keeps happening. People take cues from elites. But those elites are Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. Not purely Donald Trump. People don't really have a lot of guts, I don't think. People are afraid to like be expelled from the group and like people don't really stand up for what's right, even if it is in their long-term interest when there's peer pressure against it. It really takes someone with a lot of integrity to do that. And I don't think that many elected officials have that much integrity. I mean, this segment started because of Anthony Gonzalez's experience, and he was kind of like driven out of the party through the primary process, through people making his life difficult, et cetera, et cetera. Jeff and Sarah, I don't know if you have specific 
insights into the public opinion here, but like basically are democratic norms and values popular and popular above and beyond some of the other issues in such a way that people would vote based on them? I think that they are popular. However, I don't know if you can win on those above and beyond kitchen table issues or highly salient social issues. Or It's sort of a jumble, and I don't think you can say – there's no such thing as like a one-issue voter anyway. Maybe someone might describe themselves that way, but there are very few who actually are that way. One example of this that might be out there is like the Georgia runoff for Senate back in January when Democrats won both of the Senate seats there. And maybe there's an argument that arguing that the election is rigged and that think that there was impropriety in the 2020 election is not good for you to win elections and might actually turn off some voters or cause some voters who you want to show up if you're a Republicans to not show up because they think, why am I voting in this election that doesn't matter? Because actually turnout tended to be down more in more Republican parts of Georgia than in more Democratic parts in the runoffs compared to the 2020 uh, regular election in November. However, that's one example, and I don't think you can take one example to the House on what that means and whether it's actually not so much that it's that voters care specifically about democratic norms, is that basically calling democratic norms into question by saying the election is rigged or the election will be rigged, does that actually produce sort of a negative response from your own voters and they don't show up well enough? I don't know. I don't think the one election can prove that, but it does raise that question at least that it's not so much about it being like a positive strategy to run on, but rather if you're embracing that kind of rhetoric, are you actually screwing yourself? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, CNN, actually, they had a recent poll that asked Americans whether they felt democracy in the U.S. was under attack. And 93% of Americans said, yes, it was either under attack or being tested. And I thought what was really interesting in that was that Republicans were actually more likely than Democrats to say that democracy was under attack. And I think that was in large part because that answer seemed to be correlated with how they thought President Biden was doing in his job. And Republicans were less likely than Democrats to think Biden is doing a good job. And so it's like when we have these questions and debates around democracy and norms and values, I think if you asked voters from both parties, they would argue that they were pro-democracy. So taking that tension into play, then what we're seeing at the federal level in particular with policies, you know, it's just like, I'm not sure to what extent Republicans are going to concede and say that they are not being pro-democratic in the way that they're governing. I don't think the polls really support that. Yeah. And, you know, to Sarah's point, this might get into differing opinions about what democracy really is and what rights are paramount or are they actually just privileges, not rights. And, you know, there was a Pew Research poll a little while back that found far more Republicans than Democrats thought voting was a privilege, not a right. So I think you're asking people, do you care about democracy? But how people define what democracy means may differ to such an extent that they're not answering the same question, really, in a way. Like what they view democracy as, yes, that's important, but that doesn't necessarily mean they agree on the definition. And that can get back to the fact that the two parties may be so far apart now that you know they're living in different worlds all the time in terms of the, the news they're watching and the rhetoric they're hearing and actually listening to. And sort of that separation that exists, I think you can see it there in just terms of what does democracy even mean? All right. Well, this segment shows some of the challenges facing democracy, and we will keep tracking them. 
Well, let's move on and talk about some of our final takeaways from the California recall election. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. When we recorded our late night California recall election podcast last Tuesday, somewhere in the range of 70% of the vote had been tallied. Now that's at about 85%. And the vote to keep Newsom still leads by 27 points. So some analysis has suggested that Newsom's larger-than-expected victory shows Democrats may have a path to keeping control of Congress next fall. It also shows that there was a pretty significant polling error. So let's talk about all this. First, the polling error. Polls had keeping Gavin Newsom leading by about 16 points heading into the election. Now, we only have 80% of the expected vote in This could change, but it hasn't changed all that much as more of the vote has come in. So it's still at about a 27-point lead for keeping Gavin Newsom. How big of a polling miss is this, and what do we attribute it to? Huge. It's way bigger than the polling miss in 2020 or 2016. But no one cares about polling misses when... Nate, the polls must be broken then. (laughs) I mean, the questions are, did something happen at the end of the race, or were the polls off all along or some combination thereof? One thing that was a little bit weird was that some polls showed a very, very large gap between the likely voter electorate and the registered voter electorate, a gap that was much larger than you really ever kind of see in any other election. So it may have been that Democrats weren't then aware that a recall was going on. And once it became clear that the recall was apparently competitive, the Democrats turned out to vote and then California reverts back to how it always votes, right? That's one theory. You know, another theory is that Democrats tried to make it about Larry Elder, say, no, it's not about the recall. In fact, you shouldn't even vote on who would replace Newsom. I have very mixed feelings about that. I think it was kind of risky. But maybe that strategy worked and that focused the electorate and that produced a big shift at the end toward Newsom, right? There's also stuff like recently California is doing relatively well as far as COVID goes. I think it currently has among, if not the lowest rates in the country of infections, so the extent a lot of the Newsom buzz was about mishandling of COVID, well, now California for the time being looks pretty good there. And he kind of turned around some of the anti-vax or anti-mask messaging to hurt elder potentially. But the other theory is that the polls were wrong all along. California is a state where actually the polling has underestimated Democrats in the past. This is also true of some other states that have majority minority electorates potentially. I mean, it used to be that Arizona, Nevada, where other states where Democrats ended to beat their polls, Colorado a little bit, potentially. That was a, maybe a bit less true in 2020, where Democrats did not do as well among the Hispanic vote. But missing like white working class voters is not the only problem that polls have had. It's maybe the most prominent problem, but it was counterbalanced by maybe also missing some younger Democrats, especially younger Democrats of color, 
and that can be pertinent in a state like California. All right, so pretty big miss for polling, but there were also some other takeaways from this race. One of them was just kind of like the national political narrative that emerged from it. So this was the analysis that led the New York Times homepage the day after, quote, Newsom's anti-Trump recall strategy offers Republicans a warning for 2022. Do you all think that assessment is accurate? No, I do think, and this has been covered elsewhere, Harry Enten actually had a really great piece on this at CNN that was talking about, at least as it pertains to COVID-19, I do think you can interpret the California recall as a bit of a warning sign in the sense that we know, according to the exit polls, that the number one issue for voters was COVID-19. And writ large, voters don't really seem happy with how Republicans have handled COVID-19. Again, California, a very blue state. We have an upcoming governor's race in Virginia. It could be different. But even polls there show that voters generally, they want mask mandates. They support vaccine mandates by employers. And Republicans haven't really come up with an alternative for how to manage the pandemic other than don't make us wear masks, uh, don't make us require vaccines. That said, setting aside COVID-19 and kind of interpreting the broader lessons for 2022, that's where I think it gets murky. Yes, Newsom did well, much better than even the polls anticipated, but Biden's approval rating was even underwater from where it had been in 2020. And, you know, right now we just published our generic ballot tracker last week, which looks at how Americans support either a Democrat or Republican running for Congress. And Democrats do lead in that by a few percentage points right now. But as we've seen year after year, particularly in a midterm election, the president's party often loses ground. So while I think there are real challenges for the GOP in how they're managing COVID-19, and I do think that will be an interesting factor moving forward, potentially for them in elections, because I do think to like Nate's point about where the Delta variant was in California right before the recall election could have played a huge factor. But I do think writ large, it's really hard to then take what happened in California and say, okay, here's the playbook for Democrats moving into 2022. I don't know if Trump is going to be that salient if the economy is bad or if people are worried about crime or whatever the issue might be in their community. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of this take only because, yes, we're a long way from 2022, but also in 538's partisan lean metric, California is about 25 points more Democratic than the country as a whole. If you're thinking about the House midterms in 2022, there are slightly over 100 districts that are that Democratic or even more Democratic than that. So you're talking about three-fourths of the playing field being less Democratic than California. And obviously, that's going to change the redistricting. In fact, that number could get smaller in terms of the number that are even more Democratic than California. So to me, trying to apply what happened in a recall election, which is a weird election format to begin with, and where we know referenda actually tend to have a bias toward the status quo, I think trying to read too much into this election for what's going to happen in 2022 is unwise, because I just don't think it actually tells us that much. Um, we're a long way from it. Larry Elder may have been an easier Republican to sort of pin an anti-Trump message on than many other Republicans who are running or will be running in 2022 or even running in places like New Jersey or Virginia, those gubernatorial elections. Not everyone is a conservative radio personality. So I, I think it's a little simplistic to think that an anti-Trump message is 
going to be a key thing for Democrats to win on. Do I think it could help them? Yes. But I think some of this also depends on how much Trump stays in the news uh, over the next few months. Obviously, if he is looking to run for president in 2024, which it certainly seems like a, a real possibility, he will stay in the news and he'll he'll be active. And maybe that scares Democrats and maybe that keeps some white college-educated voters who have shifted toward the Democratic Party more in line and keeps them inside the Democratic Party realm and instead of going back a bit more toward the GOP because of a midterm environment. I would push back a little bit on the use of partisan lean metric because it's derived from races for president or for Congress and statewide races are less partisan. You have a Democratic governor right now in Louisiana. You have Republican governors in Maryland and Massachusetts and Vermont. So voters are more willing to cross party lines for governors where the jurisdiction is limited to that particular state. Maybe you would think that recalls are closer because in theory you could object to Newsom and want like a different Democrat in office. So I think it was a bad result for Republicans. I don't think you could say, well, losing by 25, I mean, you know, and the fact that whether you buy this shift in the polls or not, I mean, it's just not a good result for Republicans, but it's more like you can't really tell that much from it. It's California. Do you agree with the way the Times framed it as it was a kind of anti-Trump recall strategy that maybe helped Newsom be successful and that he was, towards the end of the race at least, running in a way more against Trumpism than addressing COVID or the environment or wildfires or some of the things that actually got people interested in this recall election, perhaps in the first place. The media coverage of COVID policy is kind of f***ed up because the vaccine mandates are pretty popular, and especially in a blue state like California. Indoor mask requirements are pretty popular, actually. And so kind of the media kind of listens to like loud voices in the media that might disagree with these things. But Newsom was running on kind of a popularist, to use that term, agenda with respect to, yeah, I mean, the popularist agenda, meaning things that just like popular, right, on COVID is keep things open, but have vaccine requirements and indoor mask requirements to some degree. That's what most states are doing. Actually, across a fairly wide spectrum of states. And what is now 75 or 76% of adults have taken at least one vaccine dose. I would guess that people who are vaccinated are more likely to vote too. So it might be 80% among the likely voter electorate nationwide. And California might be 83% or something. Like running like an anti-vax platform is like very, very stupid from an electoral as well as a public health standpoint. So you maybe are like taking lessons about COVID away from this election. But in that analysis, the Times was taking Trump-related lessons away and maybe suggesting that if 2022 becomes an argument over Trumpism, Trump's legacy, is he still a factor on the national stage, et cetera, that maybe that's good for Democrats, which is interesting in a sense because, for example, in 2018, you saw Democratic leadership really say, okay, we can't just be anti-Trump. We have to have a bread and butter policy message. 2018, there was a lot about healthcare, drug prices, saving the ACA, things like that. Like, I'm curious if the lesson now is that like the way that Democrats get their voters excited is by running against Trump and Trumpism. The GOP has not had very good results in Trump era elections when Trump himself was off the ballot. 2018, although they did gain Senate seats, was overall a pretty bad year for the GOP. They lost a special election or the runoffs in Georgia. They lost a special election in Alabama. They lost in Virginia four years ago. We'll talk about Virginia, I'm sure, 2021 later on. They got walloped in this recall in California, perhaps not surprisingly. So it's going to take more than two years to turn the page from Trump 
And Trump will be very forefront of people's minds in 2022, despite the fact that the GOP might have a lot of other things from immigration to the economy to run on. Trump is going to loom very large, I think, over that election. And if he runs 2024, then he'll obviously loom very large over that election, too. That's interesting. I guess I'm more skeptical that doubling down on Trump is smart politics for Democrats. I think, again, particularly with California, the lesson there, and some of it was the timing of where the Delta variant was within the state. But the number one issue by and large, and it was by a significant percentage point, was COVID-19 for California voters. Like, I don't think it was, hey, I'm the anti-Trump candidate. This could be my own bias speaking, but it's been, what, six years of Trump? I think people are kind of done with it. And I do think Democrats had a lot of success with the bread and butter issues in 2018. Like that feels weird to um, call COVID-19 a bread and butter issue. But if like the way in which they're choosing to manage and handle the pandemic does speak to like common sense, logic, science, I do think that's a better starting point for them versus like, hey, we're not Trump. One other thing that I think is worth mentioning here on why I think the California result is not a terribly good indicator for where things are is that California is predominantly a vote-by-mail state and every voter got mailed a ballot. And that's just not a reality in most states in the country. And it's not that vote-by-mail actually favors one party, but if you're thinking about turning out marginal voters in an election and they get a ballot, and marginal voters in a blue state like California are more likely to be Democrats. So that is not going to be the case in a lot of states because most states don't mail ballots to every voter. So I I think that that's another reason to be cautious about takeaways from all this. Um, I just think that a recall election is very weird. I think the gubernatorial elections in Virginia and New Jersey are more likely to say something about the state of affairs as we head into 2022 than the recall particularly because the Virginia race, and I guess even more so because it's a state that, while Democratic-leaning, is not so Democratic-leaning that a Republican can't win there. So I think that's much more likely to be something worth looking at and looking at trends within the state and where things are shifting and what parts of the state than necessarily the California recall. I'm also from Virginia, so clearly I'm just biased toward Virginia, I guess. But seriously. (laughs) Your own bias or not, we are certainly going to track those statewide races in New Jersey and Virginia and see what happens. But let's leave it there for now. So thank you, Jeff, Sarah, and Nate. Thanks, Galen. Thank you, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Bye.